let's jump into today's Bible reading. We are in Mark chapter 6, continuing our series in Mark. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6. Passage is a little bit shorter, but the sermon's going to be a little bit longer, so I'll try to preach quickly today. Uh, So Mark chapter 6, verses 1 to 6, and the word of God reads, He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and among his relatives and his, in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief and he went about among the villages teaching. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you for this ministry. Uh, We thank you for Nathan, uh, who we celebrate his birthday today. We pray that you would continue to bless him and his family. Uh, We we thank you for the other leaders in this ministry that commit their time uh, throughout the week to be faithful servants of your kingdom. And so, Lord, as we congregate today, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you together as a community. And we pray to be able to experience the living God through your living word, so that we might be able to experience full life. Lord, I pray that you would watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. I was told to share uh, what I went through in the last week or so. Uh, So for those of you that aren't aware, I was away at Costa last week in Melbourne preaching at a youth conference. It was a very chaotic week. Uh, A lot of things happened, like crazy things happened, Um, and I noticed that consecutively they happened, and each of them distracted me uh, in one form or another, and rattled my focus on the end goal of preaching, going to Melbourne and preaching God's word faithfully to this group of youth high school students, Uh, and it began with the flight um, I shared with some of you. Uh, It was only meant to be a 90-minute flight. Sydney to Melbourne is about 90 minutes And I'd only gotten about four hours sleep the night before. So I thought, you know what, it's only 90 minutes. Let's try to get as much sleep as possible. Uh, I was awakened about 30 minutes later because I could hear a lot of nervous murmuring. And then I could smell something funny. So I opened my eyes and I see the cabin filling with smoke. I'm like, oh, that's not good. (laughs) Probably not a good sign. Uh, I thought maybe the lenses of my glasses had been smudged because that can make things seem a little cloudy. So I took my glasses off and started cleaning them, but then you could smell it and you could see the smoke moving around you. Um, I then saw the flight attendants starting to run up and down the aisle in a panicked state, which again is probably never a good sign. If If there's anyone you don't want to see panicking, it's probably the cabin crew on the flight that you're on. And then one of the female flight attendants ran to the front of the plane, grabbed the PA radio system, and she said, ladies and gentlemen, if I could get your attention, uh, we seem to be experiencing a slight system malfunction. 
the pilot, he's radioed air control in Melbourne. They've asked them to clear a flight path so that we can just increase our speed and get to Melbourne Airport as quickly as possible. We ask that everyone return to your seats, fasten your seatbelts, and remain seated until told otherwise. Emergency services have been contacted, and they'll be waiting on the tarmac when we arrive. In the un they always say unlikely event. In the unlikely event that we should experience any issues in landing the plane. Um, and when she said this, we all kind of looked at each other. We all looked around and made eye contact with each other, but no one made a sound. You know how in the movies everyone starts screaming? No one made a sound. It was just dead silent and you could hear a pin drop. And then the turbulence started to increase. The plane started shaking violently as we headed closer and closer to Melbourne Airport and the smoke was building up more and more. Still no one made a sound. But then about five, ten minutes from our destination, that same lady ran to the front of the plane and she grabbed the PA radio and this time there was no, ladies and gentlemen, can I get your attention? It was, everyone, turn your mobile devices off now. Not airplane mode, switch it off now. And I quickly put up my phone, started turning it off, and I looked over, and there was this massive Aussie dude in the aisle across from me, and he didn't turn his phone off. He took airplane mode off, and he started furiously texting his family, telling that he loved them, if anything happens to me, I, I love you. I want you to know that. And I couldn't get mad at that. And so I started praying. A lot of thoughts ran through my head. And I don't know, maybe I'm a bit of a weirdo, but there was a part of me that was like, hey, anything happens, I don't have to go to work on Monday. <laughs> and I thought if we do crash, at least it'll be a very brief moment of pain before I enter into eternity and I can see King Jesus and be with him forever. Uh, but then I thought about my wife because one thing I did, I always, this is a bit of a sick joke that I, I'm a twisted guy. Uh, I, I always text my wife before I get on a plane and I text her something along the lines of, if anything happens to me, I don't want you to remarry. So I started regretting sending that text to my wife. And thinking about my wife being alone without me did make me uh, quite sad and upset. And as the plane shook even harder, I prayed even harder. And then the plane descended. It hit the ground quite violently, and we all jolted in our seats. I could see like five fire trucks on the tarmac waiting for us, and the plane came to a screeching halt. No one screamed up until this point, but the moment the plane came to a stop, everyone pulled their seatbelts off, jumped up, cheering, applauding, high-fiving each other. I don't know if people hugged each other. And the first thing I did was take my phone off airplane mode. I texted my wife, and then I texted the VT team to let them know what had happened. Uh, and it hit the news as well. If you Google it, Rex Airlines and Melbourne, uh, you'll be able to see an article of that flight. But I remember getting off that flight, and I was really shaken up. I took my bag, and I didn't realize how hard I was gripping my bag, and I wandered like a zombie to the pickup zone where the Costa staff came to pick me up. Uh, I tried explaining in Korean what had just happened to me, but maybe my Korean wasn't that good because they didn't seem that shocked by it. And so, yeah, whatever. Um, but that was day one of Costa for me. And then day two came around, which was the day I would be preaching at the night rally, and I woke up to the sound of my phone ringing, and it was my wife. And she called me that morning, 
And her words, what she said to me was, Jay, uh, sorry to call you so early in the morning. I don't want to concern you, uh, but Logan, our dog, um, he might die today. What? And what had happened was we'd received a chocolate Easter bunny for Easter from a family friend, and my wife had left it in a shopping bag, and our dog Logan had, I don't know how he found it, unwrapped the foil and eaten the entire chocolate bunny. And if you don't know, uh, chocolate's toxic to dogs. My wife couldn't get out of work, um, so she couldn't take the dog to the vet. So all she could do is go to work and hope that our dog wouldn't be dead when she came home. Um, so I spent the whole day, I just recovered from the trauma of the flight, and now I spent the whole day waiting for the conference to begin. Uh, very anxious, is my best friend going to be dead by evening? And fortunately, at about 6.15 in the evening, my wife came home. Dog was okay, very hyperactive. He didn't stop running around till apparently midnight. Um, but she called me and said, Logan's fine, praise God. And I breathed a, th a sigh of relief. And I got to have my dinner with the students. And the night rally was meant to begin at 7 p.m. And so at about 6.40, 6.30, I went into the hall, sat on the front pew, and I, I thought, oh, I better start praying uh, until the night rally begins. And I was quite shaken up. And then at 6.50, 10 minutes before I was meant to preach, the fire alarm goes off in the church. Not like a smoke detector fire alarm, but one of those office building evacuate now, evacuate now, emergency, emergency kind of fire alarms. So 250 people file out into the street in the middle of the night, and we see two fire trucks come to assess the situation, and apparently with the, the way it was designed, only the fire department can switch off the alarm. And so I'm standing there, Million, million thoughts running through my head, and one of the conference speakers, uh, a very seasoned pastor who's been in ministry for like 40 years, he nudges me, and he says to me, you must have a very important message to preach tonight. Like, what do you mean? He goes, well, from what I heard, your flight almost crashed, your dog almost died, and 10 minutes before you're meant to preach, the fire alarm goes off. Do you really think this is a coincidence? And it made me wonder, was it a coincidence? I don't think it was. And this pastor put his hand on my shoulder and he began to pray for me as the students began to file back into the main hall. And he prayed for my focus so that I could remain focused on the end goal and on the message that I would preach. Now, the reason I share this testimony with you uh, isn't because I wanted to share it with you because it's a crazy story, which it is. But... Because the message that I preached on that evening touches on some of the themes that we'll be covering in today's passage. Because one of the dangers of walking with Christ is becoming too familiar or thinking we've become familiar with the Jesus of Scripture. And I'll unpackage what I mean by that later on in my sermon. But if you recall our series in Mark so far, Jesus is very deep into what would be a three-year ministry before his death. And so far in the Gospel of Mark, we've seen so many crazy things happen. Uh, we saw that Jesus preached in synagogues with a unique kind of authority. We saw that he healed countless people. We saw that he stopped a mega storm by rebuking it. 
We saw that he cast out a legion of demons from a naked, crazy guy that ran towards him and his disciples in the middle of a graveyard. And all these signs we saw pointed to the identity of who Jesus was. He was preaching the kingdom of God to repent because the kingdom of God is near. And the signs that he performed were all pointing to the fact that he was the king of this kingdom. He was the messianic king of the Old Testament. And so in today's passage, after having spent a significant amount of time in the city of Capernaum, which was his ministry headquarters, Jesus, it says, made a journey to his hometown, which was Nazareth. And a bit of background, I'm not sure if you're all aware, but if you've gone to church during Christmas, you probably would have learned that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. He was. Uh, didn't grow up in Bethlehem. He grew up in a, in a region of, north of Bethlehem uh, called Nazareth. And that's why, you know, you often see movies, they say Jesus is Na- Jesus, Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Because um, he, he grew up in Nazareth. And from what we can make out in the scriptures, uh, we can assume that Nazareth wasn't a place that people thought very highly of. Uh, in John chapter 1, verse 46, Nathaniel, when he finds out that Jesus is from Nazareth, he says, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Now, I was worried about whether to put this in, but I live in the western suburbs, so I'm kind of making fun of myself. But I live not far from Mount Druitt, and I hope no one from here lives in Mount Druitt, because uh, I don't want to offend you, but I live not far from, I used to live in Mount Druitt as well. But to say that Jesus was from Nazareth was kind of like the equivalent of saying Jesus was from Mount Druitt. And so Jesus, having performed a number of miracles, mainly in Capernaum, he heads back to his hometown of Mount Nazareth. And on the Sabbath day, he goes into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he began preaching and teaching there. And, you know, if Jesus' ministry headquarters in Jerusalem, if the population, sorry, in Capernaum, if the population of Capernaum numbered in the thousands Uh, Nazareth kind of numbered in the hundreds. There weren't many people there. So everyone that grew up in Nazareth, they knew exactly who Jesus was. They grew up with him. They knew his family. They knew knew that Joseph, his father, was the local carpenter. And Jesus would have been someone that they they knew. They knew who he was. He was the, the son of Mary and Joseph. And so these people that know him, they heard him preach. And similar to anyone that would hear Jesus preach, Verse 2 says that they were astonished or amazed. And they ask three questions to begin with. They say, where did this man get these things? What's the wisdom given to him? And how are such mighty works done by his hands? If I were to paraphrase that into modern day English, it's like, how does he know all this? Where did he learn all this? And how on earth, this Jesus guy, this Mount Druid Jesus, how is he able to perform all these remarkable miracles? And these are good, legitimate questions for anyone to ask. And whenever you read through the gospel, a majority of the time, when these questions are asked and people are amazed, usually it's in a positive context. But not this time. Because verse 3 shows us that they ask two more questions after this that show it's not a positive response. In verse 3, it says, Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? And the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon are not his sisters with us. And they took offense at him. These people of Nazareth were offended by Jesus. 
And what's more, they make a subtle insult towards Jesus and his family. Because they refer to Jesus as the carpenter, the son of Mary. Now, many scholars believe that Joseph, the father of Jesus, uh, died very early on in the life of Jesus. And that's probably true. I I would say that that's most likely true. Because after the birth of Jesus, you don't really hear from Joseph again. Even at the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water to wine, they come to Mary, no mention of Joseph. Even at the crucifixion of Jesus, if anyone is going to be present at the death of your son, you'd think it would be the father. No mention of Joseph. But here's the thing. In Jewish culture, even if your father was dead, Jewish custom had it that you would still be referred to by your father's name. That you're the son of so-and-so. You're the son of Joseph. And so by referring to Jesus as the son of Mary, even if Joseph's dead, it was actually a subtle insult from the people of Nazareth to show Jesus we know that you're not a legitimate child. Mary might be your biological mother, but we know that Joseph wasn't your biological father. You are an illegitimate child. And so Jesus, hearing Jesus preach, hearing Jesus, the guy they grew up with, the illegitimate son of Joseph, hearing him preach to them about their wickedness, to repent of their sins, preaching about the kingdom of God and ultimately saying, I am the king of this kingdom. These people, they're thinking, you know, get out of here. This Jesus is the king of God's kingdom. This illegitimate son that was born out of wedlock, Mount Druid Jesus. This Jesus is the eternal king, the messianic king that God promised from the Old Testament. I'm not buying it. And so they turn their noses up at him. And so despite all the knowledge that Jesus demonstrated through his preaching, despite all the reports of supernatural miracles that Jesus demonstrated, you know, he raised someone from the dead in the preceding passage. Their hearts became hardened because of their belief in the Jesus that they thought they knew, the Jesus that they were familiar with, Mount Druid Jesus. I'm sorry again if there's anyone from Mount Druid here. And so Jesus responds to them in verse 4 by quoting a Jewish saying. He says, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and his own household. Jesus refers to himself as a prophet because traditionally, prophets were subject to persecution. In the Old Testament, we see many of the prophets of God suffering and being persecuted horrendously. Tradition has it that the prophet Jeremiah was stoned to death. The prophet Ezekiel was also executed. The prophet Isaiah, who wrote that amazing book in the Old Testament, tradition has it that they they tied him up between two trees and they sawed him and cut him in half down the middle. And so Jesus' response in verse 4 shows us that he knew that this kind of of aggressive opposition was coming in his hometown. Now, verse 5 is quite interesting because he says, and he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And I say it's interesting because remember who Jesus is, second person of the Godhead, sovereign Lord over all creation, all-knowing and all-powerful. 
What does it mean that he could do no mighty work there? He can do anything. He's God, isn't he? And what we know from the scriptures is that what this verse means isn't that this was a matter of inability, because he's God, but rather it was a choice not to perform mighty works because of a lack of faith. You see, when it comes to King Jesus, we can approach the king by grace through faith. That's what our gospel teaches. That's what our New Testament teaches. If you approach Jesus by faith, the scripture promises that he will never, ever turn you away. Even in Mark's gospel so far, the people that Jesus has encountered, they really have no idea who he is. They haven't grasped who he is. They know he's a great teacher, he's a miracle worker, but they don't know that he's the second person of the Godhead. And yet when they approach Jesus, he receives them every time. He even received a naked guy that ran towards him every time. But for the people of Nazareth, most of them weren't willing to come to him. Why? Because to them, he was Mount Druid Jesus. They were offended that Mount Druid Jesus would tell them to repent. They were offended that Mount Druid Jesus would say, I am the king of God's eternal kingdom. And so being offended by him, they turned their noses up at him and refused to come to him. But there must have still been a small handful that sought him because verse 5 tells us that he still laid his hands on a few people and he healed them. Now, another thing I want to point out about verse 5 is that verse 5 implies that the mighty works of Christ went far beyond the performing of miracles. In fact, verse 5, if you read it, it kind of suggests that the miracles were the least of the mighty works that Jesus performed. And the reason for that is if you read through the whole of the New Testament, what you will find, the conclusion that you'll come to, is that the greatest work that God can perform for any individual, in any individual, is the miracle of conversion. The miracle of being born again by the Spirit of God. That is God's greatest miracle that he can perform. Because to transform a God-hating, sinful, God-rejecting, corrupted sinner who wants nothing to do with God into a lover of Christ that is willing to give his life into the hands of the king. That's God's greatest miracle. And so the passage concludes with Jesus saying that just as they were astonished with the audacity of Mount Druid Jesus, Jesus was also equally astonished at their unbelief. And yet he continued his work of ministry in the villages, teaching and preaching the gospel. And that's how today's passage ends. Now, a few observations I want us to take away from today's passage. And observations I really want to encourage and shape the way we view Jesus and walk with him. Is firstly, I want to establish the point, point one. That when we read through the scriptures, and especially today's passage, Jesus does not give up when faced with our unbelief. 
Let me repeat that. Jesus does not give up when faced with our unbelief. Remember at the end of chapter 3, a few weeks ago, uh, we, we spoke about Jesus' siblings. You know, they'd heard reports of Jesus and everything that he was doing, and they came to try to seize him by force and drag him back home because they thought he'd lost the plot. I gave an analogy that it'd be like the equivalent of you switching on the TV and on Channel 9 News, watching your big brother come on TV and announcing to the world, hey, guess what, guys? I am the God of the universe. They thought their brother was a lunatic. Jesus' own family rejected him as the Christ. And so for Jesus, it was just a given that if his own family rejected him, then so would the people of his hometown. It's only natural, isn't it? And so not only do they reject him, but they make a derogatory insult towards his mother and to him. Now, I don't know about you. Anyone insults my mom. I'm a pastor, but they're going to have problems. I love my mom. But they insult Mary, the mother of Jesus. They refer to Jesus as the son of Mary, not Joseph, to point out the fact that Jesus is an illegitimate child, insinuating that Mary was an unfaithful wife. And that happened because they were offended by Jesus. Mount Draw Jesus. They were offended that this guy they grew up with would have the audacity to claim that he was the messianic king from the Old Testament. But despite all of this, despite their opposition to him, despite them insulting his mother to his face, Jesus does not reciprocate their hate. But it says at the end of today's passage that even though they didn't come to him, he went into their villages. He continued teaching and preaching the gospel to them. They hated him, but they still mattered to him. They loathed him, but he still loved them. And for me, this reveals the depth of God's love that even in his humanity, you can insult his mother to his face and he will not give up on you. It reveals the depth of God's love for humanity, God's love for you and I. From the beginning of time, for tens of thousands of years, man has constantly declared war against God. They've constantly declared to God that they don't want him on the throne of their life, that man wants to be the king of their own life. We saw it in our first parents, Adam and Eve. And we've seen it throughout the history of Israel. If you read through the Old Testament, the idolatry that they continuously fell into was a spiral to show God, we want to be king of our own lives. And we see it in our own lives today. And this is why we have to constantly wage war against our flesh. Because the pattern of sinful man is that we continue to try and turn our noses up at God, just like the people of Nazareth, insulting God to his face through our sinful nature. 
showing God through our life that we don't need him on the throne because outside of Christ, we think we can find something better. But for anyone that's been walking with God for any period of time, we know that despite all our attempts to usurp Christ off the throne of our life, that we keep coming back to that same place, rock bottom, the conclusion that despite all our efforts, we cannot find anything better than Christ. Because everything that the world has to offer is temporal. Any pleasure, any contentment, any satisfaction that the world has to offer is temporal. It's here today and gone tomorrow. Outside of Christ, for anyone that's walked with Jesus for any period of time, we know that there is no lasting joy or satisfaction that the world can bring. And if left to our own devices, we'd forever be stuck in this never-ending spiral of regret, guilt, and shame with no way out. But that's the good news of the gospel. Because what the cross has accomplished is that Christ has smashed through that war of sin, shame, and never-ending guilt. And he's paved a way out for us. And he did it despite our unbelief. Just like in today's passage, despite the fact that they insult his mother to his face, Jesus does not give up on them, and the cross demonstrates that he didn't give up on us. Point number two, and there's only two points. Don't settle for a familiar Jesus of Nazareth. Now, recently, while my wife is in Bali, um, she's coming back tomorrow. I've got one day left. Oh, I hope she's not watching. <laughs> um, I, I, I seized an opportunity while my wife was away because uh, she hates horror movies. I made a little time on Wednesday evening to book in an evening session to watch The Pope's Exorcist. Um, and the cool thing about watching a horror movie in the final session on a Wednesday evening is that no one shows up. Uh, I had an empty cinema all to myself, and I love, I love horror movies. And I particularly love exorcism movies. And I think part of the reason why I love horror movies is because I love Satan getting dominated. I love seeing that. And there's this one scene in the Pope's Exorcist. I can't remember the, the line verbatim, um, but there's this scene where, like, Russell Crowe's playing this, does an awesome job playing an Italian exorcist. Um, he's the chief exorcist of the Vatican and is face-to-face with the devil. And he's getting just pummeled by the devil. And the devil looks Russell Crowe in the eye and he says, God is not here. Then Russell Crowe, being the awesome actor he is, looks the devil back in the eye, and without an ounce of fear, he declares, God is here because God is everywhere. And given that it was an empty cinema, I could pump my fist in the air without having to worry about people thinking, what's wrong with this guy? And even though the exorcism was performed by a Catholic, um, and even though there were so many things theologically wrong with the movie, I loved that line, 
God is everywhere. The devil can never say God is not here because God, our God, is an all-knowing God. He's an omnipotent God. He's an omniscient God. And he is everywhere. He's omnipresent. And so often in our Christian life, I don't think it's ever intentional. But maybe because of the burdens and struggles we experience in everyday life, we, we, we have this unintentional response to put God in a box. And we limit our understanding of God. And we limit our understanding of his power and his sovereignty. And instead of the God of Scripture, the Jesus of the Scripture, the Jesus of the Old Testament and the New Testament, we tend to settle with a familiar Jesus. A Jesus of Nazareth. A Jesus of Mount Pruitt. I should stop saying that, sorry. But what I proclaim to the students in Melbourne at Costa, and what I'm proclaiming to you guys today, is that our God is much bigger than this. And we should never settle for a familiar understanding of a Jesus of Nazareth. We should always be digging deeper and deeper into the scriptures and prayerfully asking our king to reveal more and more of himself to us and allowing us to experience a greater and greater revelation of him to captivate and shape the way we walk with him. A greater revelation of our king empowers us to daily pledge our allegiance to him and pledge our day to him. And for those of you that are in CG groups, if you're not in a CG group, I'll say it again, get plugged into a CG group. Uh, it's an awesome community. I visited one on Tuesday. Amazing community. But if you're in a CG group, you know we're going through the book of Ephesians. And I'm assuming you've covered this section in the studies, but you'll notice that Paul prays in the opening chapter of Ephesians. And I'll read verses 15 to 18 of the opening chapter. Paul says, For this reason... Because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in knowledge of him, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of the glorious inheritance in the saints." Now, sometimes when we think of a revelation of Jesus or wisdom about Jesus, we relegate to, we have a tendency to relegate that to step one of Christianity. I became a Christian. I learned about Jesus. I've come to know Jesus. Bang, step one done. Time to move on to bigger and better things. But Ephesians, you have to remember, was written not to unbelievers. It was written to the churches in Ephesus. It was written to Christians. And what's more, Paul says that these Christians were model Christians. Paul compliments their, their faith and their love in the opening chapters. These guys were the blueprint of what Christians should look like. And yet, Paul says, for these guys, for the guys that are that just doing everything right, for the guys that all other Christians should imitate, Paul says, I'm praying unceasingly for you. Why is he praying? So that they don't just settle for a familiar Jesus of Nazareth. They don't put Christ in a box, but day by day, 
they grow more and more in their revelation of who Jesus is. And that's my encouragement to all of you today. Every day of your life, open this book, dig deep into the scriptures and ask God to daily reveal more and more of himself to you. And don't just do it by yourself. Do it with each other. Create this culture within FLM where you're familiar, where it becomes a practice of you reading the Bible together. Maybe someone, maybe the person sitting next to you, maybe someone that you don't know, just say, hey, why don't we catch up for a coffee, get to know each other, and we can read the Bible together. If you're a teacher in HMX or Jeta, do it with your students. Get them into the habit of digging deep into the scriptures. And if you're a parent, absolutely put this into practice with your children. Even if you don't do it with them, show them that you're a man or woman of God that opens this word on a daily basis and digs deeper into the scriptures. That doesn't settle for a familiar Jesus, but prays for a greater and greater revelation of him. Christ does not give up on us. No matter how much we insult him, even though the people of Nazareth insulted his mother to his face, face, Christ does not give up on us. And because he does not give up on us, we should never, ever settle for a relegated, watered-down version of a Jesus we think that we're familiar with. Now, I want to enter into a time of prayer. And I said this to the kids in Melbourne. Um, and I don't think it's just people in Melbourne. I think it's modern-day Christians everywhere. Uh, we, we've come to a point where we're not a people that immerse ourselves in God's word as we should. I prayed before I began my sermon that we worship a living God and the way we encounter a living God is by taking hold of the living word that is given us. I mentioned at the beginning of my sermon that I don't think it was a coincidence that all these distractions arose. Because for anyone that's following Christ, we are a threat to the kingdom of darkness. And the only way we can wage war is to put on the armor of God and our weapon of warfare as dictated by God himself is the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And so if we're going to have any hope in fighting this spiritual war, we can't do it apart from his word. We need to be equipping and arming ourselves on a daily basis to be able to encounter the risen king, the king that doesn't give up on us and experience a greater and greater revelation so that we don't settle for a watered-down Jesus, but to daily dig ourselves deeply into the scriptures to commune with him 
and to encounter him. So in this moment, if you do need to spend a bit of time in repentance, I do encourage you to do that now. And if you want to encounter a greater and greater revelation of the King, prayerfully ask him now to make you a man or woman of the word. Someone for whom the presence of Christ is as real as the people in this room. And so let's cry out to God and spend some time in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we, th we thank you for grace. We saw in today's passage the people of Nazareth insult the mother of Jesus to his face. And yet we see that the response of Christ is not to reciprocate the hate, not a response of retaliation, but a response of love. And it's a response that's not just demonstrated to the people of Nazareth, but through the cross of Christ, we see it's a response that is given to us. Despite our crimes, our sins and our offences, despite all the times we have turned our nose up at you, that not once have you chosen to give up on us. And so, Lord, we pray that in response to this grace, that we would be shaped by it, transformed by it, so that through your living word, that day by day our hunger would grow to experience the living King, the risen King, 
that conquered death on our behalf. And Father, I pray for this Ephelim ministry that we wouldn't just do this individually, but this practice of digging deep into your word would become a cultural aspect that defines our ministry. That we would dig deep together as friends and as family. And it's in the name of King Jesus that I pray. Amen.